to me, especially in today's world where in, in large part because the pace of the pace of change feels like it's always accelerating and, and to a large degree fueled by the innovation that's always happening in technologies. I think strategy can be a little bit more like a creative act. I think strategy and innovation can inform each other in really complementary ways. Hello, hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV. I'm Fernando Moncada. Every successful business needs a strategy, and every business will need to innovate in order to survive. Strategy, of course, sets out the long-term direction and intentionality for a business, while innovation, by definition, deals with new things, which naturally can be disruptive. So how do you moderate those two? Which of them informs the other more, and how? My guest today is Debbie Brackeen, who is perfectly, and you might even say uniquely, placed to answer that question. As Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at CSAA Insurance, her role seeks to find harmony between these two elements that, while not necessarily in opposition to each other, can certainly butt heads. Brackeen's prolific career has seen her wear many hats at some of the biggest and most successful companies in the world, and turning new ideas into reality has been a common thread throughout. We talk about what inspired her passion for innovation, how CSAA established its venture building strategy, which has led to the success of ventures like its mobility insurance platform, Mobilitas, how companies are running the risk of limiting themselves if they don't use the tools in the innovation toolbox, and much more. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, and spread the word about CVC Unplugged, but above all, enjoy the show. Debbie, it's great to have you on the show, truly. How, how, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. No, it, it's my pleasure. I, absolutely. And, and taking a look through your work history is a bit like scrolling down the Fortune 500 list, right? So you've got everything from Apple, eBay, Hewlett-Packard, City, and now CSAA. You know, walk us through that, that kind of journey a, a bit. You know, how, how did you get to where you are? Thank you. Yeah, I feel lucky because uh, it was a bit of an accidental career. I started at Apple actually while I was still doing my undergrad at Stanford. And I, my first year at Stanford, I was always going to be a doctor. So I was pre-med. And then, then I decided that that wasn't for me and was taking different courses. But I bought a Macintosh while I was at Stanford, fell in love with it, couldn't stop talking about it, ultimately landed me some contract work at Apple and summer internship. And that turned into 10 years there, which was fantastic. And I just literally fell in love with technology. Just the, and, and, you know, Apple at that time was not the be- global behemoth that they are today. They were more sort of like a David to IBM's Goliath. <laughs> and so it was very kind of a challenger mentality and very kind of non, non-traditional, non-conformist. I mean, I think if you had a cons- computer science degree and, and wanted to program at Apple, that might be, you know, a negative. Like they, they like the homebrew club type of programmers. But um, I fell in love with technology at Apple. And then I, yeah, I had the opportunity to follow some colleagues to Sun and other places. I, I worked for a couple of venture-backed startups along the way, eBay. But I always, I would say, gravitated to the next new thing in technology. That's one of the things that I like. I'm curious. I like to learn. And technology is always changing. A little slower back then than it is today, but satisfied uh, that itch in, for me. And you know, when I landed at HP, I realized that one could actually have a focus you know, in their career around corporate innovation and venturing. And so that's kind of where 
uh, that set the direction, frankly, for the second half of my career, where I've, I've had the luxury of focusing on corporate innovation and venturing since HP, so the last 15 plus years. Um, so it started at HP. While I was there, I met the, the first ever ch- chief innovation officer for Citibank, who recruited me over there. So I, I spent almost six years there, right at the beginning of the fintech boom, which was an exciting time to be at City. And then the fintech boom spawned the insurtech boom. The insurance companies and recruiters came calling. Uh, and that's how I landed the job that I have today as Chief Strategy Innovation Officer at CSAA. What do you think it is about innovation that kind of made you gravitate towards it during your career? I, I've heard you speak in the past about, about the influence that your father had on you in that sense. Is that is that like a big, big chunk of it, I'm guessing? Well, you know, on in hindsight and on reflection, my father's uh, sadly been gone for a long time, but he was he spent all of his career in the aerospace defense industry, which is kind of a stodgy old, you know, kind of very traditional industry. Certainly at that time, probably still is to some extent. But he was known as a very entrepreneurial executive in the industry, and he worked on a lot of projects that. I didn't, and we didn't, I think, have this language for it at the time, but he worked on something called the X-24B, which was effectively an, a, a, an MVP for the space shuttle. It literally was designed not to fly to space, but to figure out how does an aircraft drop into the atmosphere at you know a raging speed and land in a designated place on the planet consistently. And he worked on Skylab, which was a prototype or first version of the International Space Station. He worked on the first, I think they were called the Viking probes that were sent to Mars. So I think some he definitely had some entrepreneurial DNA. And I like to believe that maybe I got a little bit of that from him. Although, you know, during my teen years, we spent a lot of our time fighting, which is, you know, what some children do with their fathers, I guess. But, That's par for the course. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember him actually calling me when I was at Apple and you know, back back then, 30 years ago, right, a lot of technology would come out of the defense industry, aerospace industry, or industry in general. It wasn't so consumer driven. And I think we started having some conversations, luckily, from my point of view, before he was gone, that we definitely connected on this idea that wouldn't it be cool if this technology that is designed for this, you know, specific purpose in a, in a, you know, kind of military setting, let's say, could be tweaked in this way for this kind of more general population use. So that was kind of fun. So I assume it came from there, but um, I definitely ended up with that curiosity. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you say it's not consumer driven, but some of the biggest innovations have come from that sector, right? The internet, GPS, all that kind of stuff. So Right. Yeah. Pretty conducive to it. And how did you find the kind of transition from tech to financial services when you moved over to city? You know, really, honestly, I remember it was on the heels of the financial crisis. I think it went to city in early. We started talking to them in 2010, which we were still, you know, kind of in the midst of the financial crisis. And I joined in early 2011. My mother asked me, why on earth would you go join a bank right now? <laughs> but I think. When I was at HP, I had the opportunity to do a lot of incubations that were with our biggest division that was driving most of the profit and growth in the early time of my seven years there was the printing and imaging division. And, you know, I didn't really know anything about about those technologies or the industries that they served, which are mostly publishing, you know, types of, of industries. 
so I, I had to get smart quickly, which innovation forces you to have to you know, learn how to do. And understanding the business model, I mean, I've kind of become a little bit of a nerd around business model. I actually really enjoy trying to understand, like in publishing, publishing's are, 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 publishing is a really interesting industry and business model in that, the, you know, if you think about the value chain, you know, the people, a lot of like advertising plays a big component. They're not, they're a customer of, of their partners alongside publishers, but they're not the consumers of the content or the ultimate purchasers of the end product. And so I think once I really fixated on understanding how a business model works, and then some of the innovations my own team was working on, really, you know, some of them came from playing with how could you maybe replay with the value chain in a way that was advantageous to your business, you know, Dell kind of did that in, in its, you know, in, in offering PCs in the early days, right? You, you ordered your configuration of a PC before they built it and sent it to you. That was pretty innovative. That, you know, they didn't really change anything else about PC, just how it was kind of customized and, 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 and delivered to an end user. So I think I probably would, if I hadn't had the, I guess, epiphany of some sort at HP around if I can just understand a business model, I don't need to know anything about the industry. I'll learn what I need to know. And I mean, it helps to be a curious person who likes learning new things. And I do like learning about new industries, but banking was nothing I had ever thought about except as a consumer of various banking services before I went to, to uh, work there. But it was an exciting time to be there because they weren't really thinking about mobile phones at that time, even though mobile and, and the iPhone in particular had been on the market for a few years. And those things have become transformative. I mean, it, it spawned the whole like fintech boom, really. So so yeah, it wasn't like a conscious decision to, I think I'm going to go work in financial services. It was really a pull from the innovation side, but you know, the opportunity to learn a new industry was exciting to me and kind of a similar, I mean, Insurance is in financial services, but it's very unique. It's one of the most unique business models I've I've worked in because you go to market before you really truly fully know what your costs are going to be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I want to dig in more in, into the specifics of the insurance industries in a bit. But first, I, I want to talk about about your role a bit because you know your, your your title is a very interesting one. So you're chief strategy and innovation officer, right? Which are two things that are not they're not opposed, right? But but they're a bit almost on opposite ends of the of the spectrum in the sense that strategy, you you are kind of setting direction, getting everyone on the same page, and then innovation, you're almost trying to disrupt that in a way, right? So then how do you align the two in a way that's that, you know, it's beneficial for the company? One of the reasons in particular that I, I had an opportunity to talk to several insurance companies about a role and at least two of them had the same title, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer. But I, I chose this company because of it. it's a great company and great culture, but also for that opportunity, they saw the value in, in kind of marrying these two functions. And I, I call it the happy marriage of strategy and innovation. In my experience, just on the innovation side at both HP, at HP, my team reported up into the head of corporate strategy, you know, strategy and corporate development, but most of the team was focused on corporate development, M&A. And we were the corporate arm. I mean, every business unit, HP is a huge, you know, multinational company. So every business unit had its own kind of head of strategy, et cetera. But we did all the M&A at the corporate level. 
but people would come to my team and say, you guys are doing strategy. Like you're building things that are relevant in the future that's beginning to appear and is expected to grow. And, you know, that kind of stuck with me. And I was like, no, 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 that's not my job. You know, we're, we're building new ventures <laughs> that could become strategic to the company in the future. At City, you know, strategy was in a completely separate part of the organization. We reported up into the CFO as City Ventures, and which was both, um, I should clarify, both venture investing, but also innovation. And I ran the innovation side. I think we tried to be aligned to the corporate strategy, but also big, one of the world's biggest global banks. So it, there's, you know, there's consumer banking, you know, credit cards, there's corporate banking, capital markets, you know, all of that. So several different businesses, each of which have their own strategy, but there is a corporate strategy. You try to align to the strategy, but, you know, I think there's always the risk, especially the larger the company is that innovation gets disconnected too much from strategy. And then you have other challenges like not invented here or, you know, kind of organ rejection, you know, if you, even if you come up with a really good idea for one of the businesses. So, I mean, to me, especially in today's world where in, in large part, because the pace of the pace of change feels like it's always accelerating and, and to a large degree fueled by the innovation that's always happening in technologies. I think strategy can be a little bit more like a creative act. And I think, I think strategy and innovation can inform each other in really complementary ways. I don't think it's an effective way to approach strategy. And, you know, strategy can, can sometimes become insular, like people can become insular in their thinking and they can anchor their, their strategic vision to, well, you know, we haven't really upgraded our technology platform, so we can't be too crazy about what we're going to do. You know what I mean? And I think you got to fight against those things to some degree. And and innovation done well, and including both innovation and venture investing, you know, you're kind of trying to bring the outside in a little bit, and and make sure you're you have you have the right ambition that it's appropriate for where the company you know wants to go direct directionally. But I, I just I don't think. To me, they are inseparable in a way, or should be, at least in how executives think about them. But I, I personally think it's a, it's a great combination if, if a company can pull it off and has the, has the ability to do that. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is about the direction in which that kind of flows, right? So one might be forgiven for thinking that innovation is done in the service of the strategy, right? But then as you mentioned, the strategy can be informed by the new things that you find. Yep. Right. So how, how does that mix work? Yeah, I think, well, I would say it's a good question. Maybe, maybe I could answer it in the context of a real example. In, in my experience here at CSAA, I started six and a half years ago. And when this role was created before I was hired and they had, it also came with a, a, you know, a BHAG, you know, so we're a, at the time that I was hired, we were just shy of a $4 billion you know, U.S. insurance company that had for over 100 years been selling personal auto and home to AAA members you know, through AAA clubs. And I started in late 2016. Uber and Lyft were well on their way, but not as big as they are today. Everybody thought autonomous vehicles were coming in just a couple of years. I think Elon Musk said you know, they're going to be here by 2020 or something that obviously didn't happen. It's taken a bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit longer, a little bit harder. 
but the fact, so the BHAG was for this not quite yet $4 billion company, we need a new billion, a billion dollars of, you know, new revenue from unknown, you know, markets we're not in today, basically in the next decade. And I thought, holy moly, that's a heck of a BHAG for a smaller company. But it was actually kind of useful because it wasn't going to just happen accidentally or automatically. We would suddenly just like, you know, go into some new market that could generate a billion dollars in a decade. So I had to be thinking kind of out of the box. And there, the good news is that there was a lot of innovation going on. In mo- and, and by the way, personal auto is more than two thirds of our, our book of business um, at, at that time and, and still mostly is. And, you know, so mobility and everything that was going on in mobility from an innovation perspective, I was paying attention to both for our core business, but also just trying to think like, how on earth, where, where do we go? So the, the short version of the story is there was some innovation going on with the OEMs where all major auto OEMs were experimenting with a subscription-based business model where instead of, it's sort of like a micro lease is a way to think about it. So instead of you know buying a car or doing a traditional lease where you still have to get your own insurance, the OEMs were offering consumers to be able to subscribe to a car on a month-to-month basis for the most part. Some of them were a little bit different. Volvo was like a two-year thing. But where the insurance was bundled into the package. So it just came with insurance. And I thought, that's interesting. Because if we were to insure that model, that's a corporate policy. It's a business policy. You're insuring this subscription fleet model and not the individual driver. So that led to this thing that we called commercial, which was the blending of an insight that some of the new mobility business models were enabling, and this is true of Uber and Lyft drivers. Uber and Lyft, by the way, is one of our biggest customers on this commercial business that we ended up starting called Mobilitas to focus on the mobile sharing economy. So we diversified into commercial insurance but it was born of this insight that in these new models, there's people are kind of going in and out of personal liability and commercial liability, potentially unknowingly. So if you're a Lyft driver, you have your own car, you got your own insurance and you're driving. And as soon as you have somebody in the back of your car that you're driving around, that's a commercial exposure, you know, with the risk of bodily injury to that passenger, something horrible happens, right? So long story short, I mean, I think that's an example of, in that case, I owned both innovation and strategy, but, you know, just having, thinking about how would we go into a new market that could create a billion dollars of growth in a decade was informed by the innovation going on on the outside. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, so we started that business and we were going to focus on that subscription business model because it wasn't too, it was sort of like, I called it my horseless carriage. People that we insure today driving their Ford Fusion, they decided they're not going to own their car and have their own insurance anymore. They're just going to subscribe to this car from the Ford campus service and they're going to get the insurance. So don't we want to be able to cover those people too? They're not that different from who we're covering today, but it's a different business model. It's a slightly different product you have to file, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the genesis of, and I think an example of how strategy and, and innovation can inform each other. A couple of years later, after we started that business, we had a CEO change. Our CEO, CEO hired me, uh, retired. We have a new CEO. He's so excited about Mobilitas, thank God. Um, and of course, we have a new CEO. We're going to set a new strategy. Well, our strategy and risk appetite 
was very different under his leadership. And, you know, we, we created at that. So this was in late 19, 2019, and we rolled it out in 2020. It was our destination 2030 strategy, 10 year vision and strategy for a much bigger, you know, more diversified CSAA, including where this Mobilitas commercial business plays a much bigger role in our business. And so, you know, to me, that's a great example of what I was talking about in terms of how strategy and innovation can inform each other. And, you know, we're, we're still pursuing that same strategy today. And I'm happy to say Mobilitas almost five years in now is pretty much halfway to uh, that VHAG, you know, so we're, we're off to a good start and hopefully we'll (laughs) meet or exceed our ambition. (laughs) And I want to come back to Mobilitas in a bit, because that that's a very, it's a great example of a, of an internally built venture, which which I want to touch on in a bit. But I, you mentioned the kind of change in leadership around the time of that launch. Now, how how important was that? Do you think to to the kind of culture of innovation at CSAA? Because you you normally wouldn't kind of associate you know insurance with taking a lot of risk, right? And not 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 saying that this is a lot of risk, but it's perhaps you know not the most risk averse strategy. So you know how how, how does how important is that top down kind of support? Yeah, well, I'll parse your question a little bit because top-down support is absolutely essential in in my opinion. And this role when when it was offered to me was really attractive because the CEO and the board of directors had decided to create this division that I now lead and create that BHAG. Like they it was sort of like disruptions on the horizon. It might be bad for us. It probably also has opportunities. We need a dedicated focus and, you know, we need to set that up properly. And so in corporate innovation and other companies where I've gotten to do it, you know, it's not always so clear cut and not, you don't, maybe sometimes it gets started in the middle of the organization without that top-down leadership and you, you try to get it. But life is definitely easier if you have top-down leadership. And, and I had that for the first three years. And I, w- I want to, the part I want to parse out is we were deeply invested in and committed to cultivating, to developing a culture of innovation and innovative mindset before the second CEO, the CEO change happened a few years later. And, and I think one of the things I love about CS, I loved and it caused me to join and I still love is we are very explicit and deliberate and in talking about and designing how we're going to shape our culture to increase the odds that we'll be successful achieving our strategy that we're pursuing in this case destination 2030 now and i think i think that's really important because you there are things that you can do to really it's maybe like a analogy is if you're going to start a new garden in your backyard you know what is the first thing you do get you or you get somebody to go start digging up the soil and tilling the soil, the soil matters. And so to me, culture is like the soil, you know, for innovation to have a possibility for something to blossom from it in the future, like to bear fruit. It's analogies, I'm going to wear it out. But, you know, and so we had done a lot of things and some of them I, I, you know, started before I joined, you know, we had kind of a rally cry, you know, I think for our, our culture, when I started, it might've been something like, we're going to create a culture of insights and innovation. You know, it doesn't really matter because it was intentional. And then it was reinforced through everybody in the company got like a few hours of innovation 101 training. It was a little bit of design thinking, a little bit of lean startup, a little bit of agile. We had some pilot programs and we did one with service 
where everybody up and down the service leadership chain, and, and that's a huge part of our organization, had an innovation goal. We had an innovation, an ideation platform. Supervisors, you know, we we asked them like, look, you gotta like look at these ideas and pick one and just test and learn, run some experiments. If it works, great. Capture the data. What worked about it. if it didn't work? No problem. What did you learn from it? What would you do differently? So we've done a lot of things very deliberately in the first few years before the CEO change that I think, you know, set us up well. I will say, despite the fact that insurance companies are in the business of writing risk, of, you know, transferring risk to themselves, and, you know, to, to offload it from somebody else, basically, they are kind of risk averse. I mean, it's, I, I didn't realize that when, before I started, but it is true. And I think, as I alluded to earlier, the company I joined at the time was like over a hundred year, years old, had been effectively serving one customer and, and really homeowners and auto are two different products, but they kind of go together. It was kind of a monoline company. And when, when we first introduced the idea of diversifying to commercial auto, especially around the sharing economy, Insurance also relies on actuarial science, which is look at the history of losses to help understand pricing and loss costs and things. There's no history with the mobile sharing economy to look at. <laughs> it's all right, new. Right. And that was also uncomfortable. So I think we, you know, so the company, humans are human, right? They don't like change. So that, that took a lot of effort and work to just keep trying to reinforce the importance strategically of diversifying into a new growth segment and why we could leverage the stuff that we we knew about auto insurance and we could acquire the capability that we didn't have about commercial auto insurance maybe that was a that was a journey it wasn't a straight line it wasn't easy but we made it but then when when the CEO change happened for sure I think he kind of validated everything we had been trying to do and made it seem safer because he had 30 plus years in the industry, in some cases in commercial also. And he's like, Mobilitas is a great idea. I love Mobilitas and helped really accelerate, I think, the growth that we've been fortunate to have in that business because his his leadership and his confidence about and, and his experience and on both personal and, and commercial lines, I think really helped others get a little more comfortable with the idea. So hopefully that yeah, answers your question. It does. And, and and that's great because, you know, usually new CEO comes in and innovation organization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, nerves get a bit frayed and, you know, people want to know where they stand. So it's always encouraging. And I, I want to pick your brain a bit more about, to use your analogy, t tilling that soil within the, within the company. You know, what, what are, you know, perhaps... To, to simplify it a bit, so some of the do's and, and even more interestingly, some of the don'ts yeah. of cultivating a culture of innovation. Well, I would say I'll start with a big don't, which is that I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to the question, right? Like there's no silver bullet. Like if you just do this, it's going to work, you know, because I think whatever you do has to work in the context of the company that you're joining. You know, you have to deal with the existing culture and all of that stuff. And as I mentioned, I think because the company historically had always been very intentional about the culture that it was creating before they were even thinking about innovation, it kind of, that was a real asset to build on. But I think do's and don'ts, I think you got to, you got to work with the piece of clay that you get. And, and then I, I think one of the 
aspects of, of my personality that's helpful and I think would be helpful to anybody else. If you don't have it, you can find somebody who does, right? It's just the systems thinking, you know, like think holistically that, and I, some of these lessons I learned maybe the hard way, like blind spots I did, that I had that I, I didn't see problems um, until I encountered them. <laughs> then I learned, oh, so, you know, and some of these things, I think before we had the lean startup book and that kind of methodology and mindset, I think more of this stuff has become socialized in, in the innovation community. But, you know, just, I think one choice that the, my, the CEO that hired me and I made, which I still think was the right choice. Some people told me in, in, the, in the company told me, don't try to do everything you should like see if you can go do innovation over there, get a different building. You don't even like have to like operate inside the corporate construct, like free yourself of all that bureaucracy so you can really innovate. And I've done that. And that I have found, you can do some really cool things and discover that nobody cares because disconnected, it wasn't invented here. So in my case, the CEO that hired me really wanted to have create a, a, an innovative company. So the whole company. So, you know, we aligned on, I'm going to make some investment in my team's resource to help the whole company be innovative and build on some of the stuff they had already started with HR, like the training, et cetera. But we're also going to obviously do innovation that, you know, you don't want everybody in the company doing horizon three disruptive innovations. Like that's not helpful. You need some short-term <laughs> revenue. <I suppose. laughs> And so that's kind of how we set it up. And that worked for this company. That won't work, you know, may, that may not work for huge multi-line, you know, global companies, but it, it worked for this one. And then I think the other thing too is, you know, you got to start with some plan and start executing it, but don't be overly wedded to it. If it's not working, switch it up. I, I think, you know, you always have to be innovating how you're innovating to some degree. And if you're successful, and I think we've had some success over the last six and a half years, when I started, any new incremental idea that we brought to the core business probably felt very disruptive to them. It's like, I've never had to deal with this satellite imagery. Why are, you know, I just send the home inspectors out there to look at the houses, you know, why do I need to deal with this? It's like, well, because, you know, the home inspectors don't always go up on the roof and when they do, it's dangerous and, you know, you can't inspect every home. It's expensive. But these things, you know, you just like flies over everybody's home and you can subscribe to the service that gives you that data. But I think now, six and a half years in, you know, the product team is very innovative. They're like, Debbie, like, do you have a company that does X, Y, Z? Like, I don't, you know, we're not trying to convince them that there's something that they, they know that there's, there's stuff happening out there that they, they want to know about. And so we have to adapt where we're investing our innovation resources relative to the company is now much more innovative, which is awesome. That's what we wanted. So I think, I, I guess my, my don't is don't assume the same thing is going to work anywhere. You really have to adapt whatever you're doing to the company. And I do think you've got to get aligned with senior leadership on what that is because having their support and air cover helps. I think there's other things that, you know, you can find some way to work them into everything. We have a, a, gr a growth board. We, so we my, my peers and the CEO who are the executive leadership team for the company are also the growth board, but it's a different kind of hat we wear. It's a different mindset. So we're a, not exactly, but a little bit more thinking like 
venture capital investors, like what are the strategic bets we're making for the future? How do they relate to what we're doing today? There's a tolerance and, and an understanding that not everything that we try will work and that's okay. So, you know, some of that kind of stuff, I think, you know, you can find a way to work that in almost in any construct. Was there a specific kind of inflection point when you went from having to push innovation to when people were coming to you for it? Hmm. Not every place in the company is exactly the same, right? So I, I found this to be true at HP and City too. Like those were larger companies, but same principle applies. Like they're going to be people who are naturally more open and welcoming, you know, uh, collaborative, want to partner, you know, want to want to do stuff together and then other people who are, are maybe more you know comfortable with everything's fine I don't need to don't rock the boat you know kind of mentality so we, yeah there's parts I think of our company that are a little more like that but generally speaking I think whether they 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 did it by working with us directly or just kind of naturally evolved alongside the rest of the company I mean the pandemic really accelerated a lot of stuff right I can't think of a, a, a particular moment in time you know, everything's its own journey. I mean, mobilitas is like so fun to talk about now, but I mean, the early years, it was, <laughs> it was a slog. I mean, that's the truth. I had people tell me it was the dumbest idea they'd ever heard. Some of my peers, you know, it's like, it's a slog, you know, but it's worth the fight. I think if you really get conviction and I had, I got strong conviction that that was strategically really important for us for offensive and defensive purposes. and. I just got lucky when that you know we were able to get it started and everything and protect it long enough and then when the new CEO came you know that that really I got lucky um, on that one because it could have gone either way. <laughs> yeah, because you know it's it's I think sometimes the distance between conviction and the kind of willpower to push it is it might be a bit longer than people realize, right? So what helped you do that? Well, I do have I think. I can be stubbornly persistent if I really believe in something and that's probably what it was, but it, you know, it was a slog. There's no, and, and I had, you know, a couple of those moments where it's like, you know, head in the hand, like, Oh man, you know, is, is this going to work? And, and it did take a lot longer than I think, certainly than some people on my own team thought it might. And I, I had to answer questions from folks on my team, you know, like, why is it, what's going on? And, and I'm like, well, positive. You want to stay positive, right? But be also transparent and honest. And it's like, well, you know, it's taking some folks a little longer to get comfortable with this. And it's new. It's a new, we're venturing into this new territory that we don't have years of experience in commercial mobility and insurance. And we're being maybe a little extra careful, but, you know, don't lose faith. We're, you know, we're going to get there. <laughs> Thankfully we did. Well, and now that we can kind of look back at, at, at Mobilitas as a success story, tell me a bit more about how you went about kind of structuring and, and mounting your, your internal venture building capability and I suppose how the interplay between that and the equity investment venture side of, of, of the business. I think to some extent, and I think this is true of a lot, it's not limited to innovation, you know, but to some extent we were building the airplanes and the hangar, you know, while we were trying to actually get some stuff done, right? You know, you're kind of doing stuff in parallel. And so I think in the early days, we, I'm trying to remember what we started with. We started with a program that was really founded on mostly 
lean startup type of principles. And we called it the Velocity Program, I think. And we kind of advertised it company-wide. And when we launched it in parallel with me setting up the growth board with my leadership team, my, my peers and CEO, the leadership team of which I'm a member. And so that was challenging because they're completely new to innovation language. It all sounds like it's like completely new jargon. I'm still learning the insurance jargon. And then we're asking employees, we were drafting employees, some from my own team, but some from different parts of the business to do kind of a tour of duty, an assignment into the Velocity program for six months, I think, where they're going to work on something completely different and new. And we literally sent them out into the wild. And we, I, I was working with a consulting firm at the time that later got acquired by Accenture, but that helped design this program. And I had worked with them before. But it was really kind of learn while doing, you know, so like hands on, like it's just an experiential way to learn. Like you're going to become part of this program through which you're going to learn some lean startup test techniques. You're going to learn how to think about opportunity spaces, problems, you know, within that, that, that might be relevant for us to solve that could be relevant for our customers, future customers or current customers and our business in some fashion. And we're going to like fast cycle sprint through, you know, the, the discovery and validation process. And while they were, the, the employees were doing that and learning that, the leadership team is learning how n- not to look like idiots in front of, like, as they're asking questions and giving feedback and ultimately voting on, does this thing keep going? Or, you know, do we say, thanks, we learned something interesting, but, you know, we're going to shut it down for now and on to the next thing. So that's kind of how we started. It was, it was a little clunky, you know, it wasn't smooth because it's new for everybody, but we've built on that. And we now have, I would call it like velocity self-service toolkit kind of capability up on the internet. Parts of my team periodically go facilitate, you know, sessions across different parts of the business. In addition to people leveraging, you know, the, the kind of self-service material that we have there. And then separately, my team also is always working on a a pipeline of ideas in three or four different portfolio areas or opportunity areas. Mobility is always one of those. Climate resilience is, is, it used to be just wildfire. Now we've broadened it to climate resilience. New business models is always one of them or new businesses. So that's a little bit of how we do it, but it's, it's not an easy question to answer because also you know, you're always, like I said, tweaking and adapting different parts of it. And and with, with the benefit of hindsight, if you could go back to right to the beginning of that process, is there anything that you'd tell yourself? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I never think anything that, that I've done is perfect. I hope I like to think it was good enough. I think we did all right. I mean, I, I had to build, I had to hire a bunch of people from, you know, outside the company, I hired a few inside the company. That's actually, I I do think that was super helpful was not everybody that I hired could be outside the company, because I think you got to have, I think having the right mix of outside in capability, talent, skill set is important, but not to, to the exclusion of having people who know the company, who know the business. And 
so I've kind of played with that a little bit. I didn't, I didn't really fully answer how does it work? How does the innovation side work with the venture investing? I mean, venture investing, I, I interviewed on that. They knew that if they hired me, I was going to want to start a venture investing arm. I got approval from the board to do that about seven months after I started. I had to you know, build the proposal and do the pitch. And we got, we got our first fund funded. And then I hired you know, somebody to lead the investment team and um, build out that team. Uh, so that was also, you know, we're kind of building that as we were going, if you will. Now we're working on, I've always tried to drive synergies across the different functions in my, my division, and especially between investing and innovation. And we've had some successes. And I mean, probably one that was, I'll call it a temporal success, but we invested in an insure, an insure tech company. We, we were still, I mean, the Mobilitas team was like, two or three people working for me, we're still incubating, still trying to file and get our approved, our first product file with the department of insurance. So we're not really selling yet. We're still standing the thing up, but we invested in an AssureTech that was focused on the sharing economy and was founded by some people who had done very relevant work at Uber and Lyft in this case. And I won't use names, but First time founders, if I recall correctly. So, and they were standing themselves up at the same time. But we kind of had this eye on like the, this insure tech investment could be a helpful partner to Mobilitas at some point. And so, about, you know, early on, and, and Lyft, by the way, ended up becoming our first customer uh, for Mobilitas. And they're still our largest customer to, to this day. And because of the TNC, transportation network company experience that the founders of, of this InsureTech came with, they basically advised our team as we were pursuing the Lyft relationship. And then a, a year after that, we want, we didn't win Lyft right out of the gate, but we, we won it the next year around. And then it was, we're building up our claims expertise in particular, they advised. And then as this InsureTech started, became its own MGA, they became an exclusive agent broker or a producer, seller, a distributor of a new product that, frankly, that team that was still four people, I think, could not have done on their own because they're like, they're dealing with this new customer called Lyft, you know, which is the first customer and not everything's all set up operationally, right? So I think that was an example of where we very deliberately were orchestrating a tie and a linkage. And I think it was mutually beneficial. It wasn't always easy. Two startups trying to partner together, you know, it was not easy. But that company ended up producing just shy of 20 million bucks in premium for us, you know, in the first year and a half or so, which was really, we couldn't have done it at the time. And it really helped Mobilitas with their credibility, I think, because they couldn't have done more than one product at a time. So um, that's just one example. And then there's another, they, I was talking about aerial satellite imagery, you know, we invested in a company called Cape Analytics really early on. It was one of our first investments, maybe second or third investment that we made. And we were piloting from day one with the, the homeowner's product team on how to think about incorporating this new capability that they had no experience with. And by the way, in the early days, the, the data, so, so this company purchases aerial imagery and applies machine learning algorithm and, and the imagery is of the tops and surrounding areas of houses and buildings and surrounding property. 
And so for homeowners insurance, sometimes we send an inspector out to check somebody's roof, like make sure the roof roof has a lot to do with damage that can occur in, in storms and stuff. And, you know, the data, like their scoring methodology was, it had some false positives and negatives, and it wasn't always perfect in the early days. So it was hard for the, you know, very analytical homeowners teams, some of whom were former actuaries are like, I can't trust this. You know, it's not perfect. It's not accurate. It's like, it'll get better. So that was another one where we we invested and partnered with the company at the same time. And, you know, we try to make sure that we're creating those opportunities for all of our venture portfolio companies. And sometimes innovation helps by doing a proof of concept or helps pilot the technology. And do, do you think that corporates, even the ones that are serious about their innovation, are, are they running a risk by only focusing on one or two tools? Like, for example, just venture building or, or, or just venture investing? I have come to that conclusion for myself in my own experiences, because when I was at HP, when we were just really doing incubation initially, there were times when I thought, oh, you know, it, it would be better to fill in the blank, you know, take a different approach. Later in, in that team, we ended up hiring somebody to help rationalize a bunch of equity investments at HP, ended up with like way too many because we were very acquisitive during that period of time. So you buy 10 companies that all have venture portfolios, you, know, you got to rationalize. So we rationalized that and returned some capital to the balance sheet on the theory that we would then invest it in startups. So we were starting to build that out before I left. It didn't happen until later, but I, yeah, I mean, I think when you, when all you have, if you, if you have a tool bag and you have a hammer in your tool bag, you know, you're probably looking for nails. <laughs> so I like having the combination of innovation we have an emerging tech lab, which is data scientists and blockchain, some engineers basically who are looking at emerging technologies and how should we be thinking about the ways in which they could be applied to our business or our strategy, either making something that we're doing more automated, more efficient, you know, whatever, or enabling a new opportunity that, you know, and revenue stream that, that we couldn't otherwise easily pursue. Business development, partnerships, venture investing, you know, and with a, a bias toward partnering with those portfolio companies to that. I think that's mutually beneficial. We, but we do make some investments also, by the way, that are pure horizon three. Like we, we, we don't have a business or a way in which we can partner with them today because it's a kind of an option on the future. One that we really love. We just had the CEO talk to the, my, my division offsite last week is Airspace Link. So they're a really cool company based in Detroit that's effectively building out a platform that is enabling an entire ecosystem to exist around drones, like delivery drones, drones that are that fly below 400 feet and are like 50 pounds or less or something like that. But our interest is in delivery drones because Mobilitas, some of our other customers are like DoorDash and Hello Fresh, right, or stuff like that, and you know that's the one of the things that got accelerated through the pandemic was all of us ordering everything to be delivered all the time to our homes, <laughs> and that's happening mostly today on the ground. But it's being it's been you know being tested and piloted drone delivery for the last several years, and it's it's advancing. But this company's basically like being has been authorized by the FAA to help define effectively highways in the sky and the rules and regulations. So, you know, we're not doing drone delivery 
insurance today, but we aspire to maybe doing that in the future and our ability to, to kind of have a seat at the table with this portfolio company as they're enabling this ecosystem to evolve and be developed we, and the access to unique and novel data sets that they have access to, to create these highways in the sky and all the rules and regulations, et cetera, we think will give us a leg up if we decide we want to do that. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. And, and if we look backwards, say 10, 15 years ago, how far do you feel that corporate innovation has come? You know, what, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the way that large organizations approach it? I think it's evolved. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's probably like, you know, today, this might not be a good analogy, right? So artificial intelligence, I think that's, that's been around for what, 50 or 60 years. And maybe the adoption curve was like pretty flat. And then in this last decade, it's just, and now all the hype is around Gen AI. And if somebody who's been like Ray Kurzweil, somebody who was here at the beginning of this journey on AI, right? If you maybe asked him, he might say, it's not that different than how we were thinking about it back then, right? <laughs> it's just been accelerated by these, you know, by data, the cloud, the compute, you know, power that we have now. So I see a lot of constants and evolution, but I also see some pretty big changes. I mean, in the olden days, right, all the big tech companies, IBM, HP, AT&T Labs, like they, they had, Bell Labs, I should say, had you know, big research arms or advanced technology arms. And, and um, I mean, we certainly had that when I was at HP. That was how my group started was see if we can monetize some inventions that are coming out of labs. So we did a lot of stuff internally and we were, we were able to make those investments back then. I think the venture capital ecosystem has really helped establish legitimate innovation across any industry externally funded by venture. And then venture has evolved to be, you know, where the point where corporate venture is a really significant player and, and percentage of overall venture capital investment. On the innovation side, I think we have some methodologies that have evolved and become more mainstream and, and accepted design thinking lean startup, you know, test, measure, learn, MVP, all, you know, test and learn, all that. I think agile also has, I mean, even in-house software development, like when I was at Apple, I mean, we did, we, we did one big new release every year. It was a new product, like a new computer with a new operating system and the third-party apps that might work with it. And then it was, wow, we're going to do this in a, in 12 months, not 18, you know, and now it's, tons of SKUs, you know, every year across multiple product lines. I mean, everything is kind of accelerated. So I think, I think it's evolved. I think some of the core principles, you know, there's, um, I really like Rita McGrath, Columbia professor, and she's been writing books. They weren't titled, you know, there was a book she wrote a long time ago that I thought I was at HP and I ran across it. I think it was called Discovery Driven Growth. And if you read that book and look at it today, it's different language, but it's kind of got a lot of qualities that are very similar or, or um, principles that are very similar to Lean Startup, just different language. But also I love, you know, she comes from the strategy side. So I think I, I love reading her because she's kind of also, that's probably why I like her. She's straddling both strategy and, and innovation. I think Roger Martin from the Rotman School of Business was, was very similar. 
in that he came from the strategy side, but he also really embraced, he worked a lot with P&G in the early, you know, they were one of the early kind of corporate innovators, I think. And he worked a lot with them on what we now might call design thinking. Well, I'm sure that's going to go on the reading list of a lot of, of uh, a lot of the people listening. <laughs> so th- th- thanks for the pointer there. I know we are just about out of time, but before I let you go, I always like asking our guests for the benefit of any kind of startup founders who might be listening. One, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach out? Probably the best way is LinkedIn. I'm trying to be better about being responsive to LinkedIn. I always have way too many things that I can respond to. But yeah, that's probably the best way of LinkedIn. And if they manage to get in the room and, and kind of pitch you guys for an investment, what is it that you want to hear from them? Oh, gosh. Well, our venture arm is Avanta Ventures. There's a separate website and they can go there if, if it's a startup that wants to pitch us, for sure. That That's probably a faster route than my LinkedIn. You know, we're always interested in, well, w- our focus areas are mobility, insure tech, and risk-related adjacencies. And we're thinking about, we're working on, I should say, a new focus area around ESG. Yeah, I mean, on the innovation side, we're focused on climate resilience internally because of wildfire risk and all that. But, you know, we're always looking for significant problems that are hard to fix and unique solutions to those problems that are, you know, we, we like companies that are looking at new and interesting data sets, if you will, and combined with some sort of marketplace or platform that's leveraging them in those domains that we meant that I mentioned. But I mean, fundamentally, you know, we're looking for a rich problem that's not necessarily easy to solve, but if solved could be extremely valuable. And in a ideally in a way that, you know, has some sort of moat, if you will, like defensibility over time or sustainability over time. And then I'm especially interested, all all founders are welcome, of course, but I have a personal passion around really trying to change some of the math, if you will, in the venture ecosystem. So more diverse founders, you know, women, people of color, more diverse co-investors as well. But uh, yeah, I think we love hearing about great new ideas and interesting approaches. I mean, I, I, that's part of the job that's super fun is every time we look at a new investment or I just go to a pipeline meeting with my team. I just love some of the creativity and ingenuity that people bring, <laughs> whether new, new spaces or new solutions to old problems. Right. If nothing else, you always learn something, right? Absolutely. And la- lastly, I want to ask, you know, what, what's next for, for innovation at CSAA? I know you, you guys were kind of working on fun too at this point, right? How, how's that coming along? Yes, we are. Yeah. So we've, we've completed all of our initial investments out of fund one and we started investing out of fund two last year. We've made a handful of investments. Airspace Link is a recent one that I'm really excited about. I think they might've been our first one out of fund two. And yeah, so I think the the thing on my mind, honestly, right now is and it's kind of it's potentially related to ventures, but it's also on the innovation side. We're running our first ever open innovation challenge in partnership with IDEO.org, and it's around climate resilience. And we're looking for ideas and and potential solutions, hopefully new ideas and new solutions to catastrophes that are caused by, you know, the, the um, warming climate 
and um, just the increase of in severity, frequency and severity of these, you know, whether it's Hurricane Ian or the wildfires, you know, we're just getting into wildfire season here in California. It's always a scary time of year. We've just had the three hottest days ever on the planet, apparently, the last few days. So, yeah, so maybe um, uh, people can, if, if you go to my LinkedIn, you'll find um, I've been posting on this climate resilience challenge. You can go in and just check out and upvote somebody's idea or add a comment to it, or you can add your own ideas. We're co-sponsoring this with some of our reinsurance partners. And we're really excited about, we've had, I don't know, over a thousand ideas submitted already. And it's uh, pretty cool to see that most of them are very new ideas and they're coming from everywhere, nonprofits, for-profits, startups, individuals, academia, research tanks, they're coming from everywhere. So we're getting pretty close to, I think the cutoff date um, might be Monday for new ideas. And then we start voting um, and there's over a million dollars in prize money for some of the winning ideas. And we're hopeful to partner with some of those winning ideas. And if one of them ends up becoming something we invest in as a, through Avant Adventures, that's great too. <laughs> well, perfect. Sounds great. Debbie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank and uh, we're looking forward to keeping in touch. Likewise. Thank you so much, Fernando. That does it for today's show, folks. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever else you prefer to get your audio content. I have been Fernando Moncada, and our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Productions. You can go right now and check out his great work at innerproduction.com. We'll be back again next week. Until then, have a good one. <laughs>